Hello, I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley, and I'm her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Heidi and I want to welcome you to Open to Hope Conversations, the podcast. We believe that the greatest gift you can give yourself after a loss is hope, using this moment to connect with others who have not only survived, but thrived. So let's get started. Welcome to the Open to Hope show. I am your host, Dr. Heidi Horsley, and I'm here today with my guest, Paula Darcy. And we are gonna talk today about transformation of pain and the restoration of hope after loss. And this is something that Paula knows well about, and she gives retreats and she writes books about this. And she is a former psychotherapist. And you know, not only has she had all this professional experience, but she's had personal experience as well because her husband and daughter, Sarah, died in a car accident years ago. And we're gonna to talk to her about how she transformed her life and found hope again. So let me tell you a little bit about Paula. Paula is an author, a retreat leader, and a playwright. Her nonprofit is called Red Bird Foundation, which supports the growth and healing of those in need throughout the world. She is an award-winning author and has written Gift of the Red Bird, Stars at Night, The Divine Spark, and winner of the heart among others. I, you, you may have written others as well, Paula, have you? Yes, yes. You've done, you've done a lot of writing, which I love. Um, as I said, she's a former psychotherapist and she is a bereaved mom and a brief spouse. So welcome to our show, Paula. Thank you. It's wonderful to have this opportunity. Thank you. It's great to have you here. And I'm just wondering, you know, I know it's been a journey for you and you've transformed your life in many ways and your spiritual beliefs have been really important to you along the way. And I just wanted to start out asking you to take us through your journey. I know at the beginning, you know, all of this started the loss of hope when your husband and child Sarah died. Yes. Mm -hmm. We were um, coming back from visiting my parents. I was in my 20s. My daughter, Sarah, was two. Um, we were riding in the car. My husband was driving. And we were 20 miles from home after a three-hour journey to see my parents. And a drunk driver crossed a median strip. And our car was in his path. And we were hit head on. Wow. And I mean, that moment in the hospital, when I learned that I alone had survived, was, I mean, it was a line of demarcation in my life. I was also three months pregnant mm -hmm. and it was like my whole house of cards just fell apart. And even though as a therapist, I, I read about, knew about shock, I had no idea. And I'd read about and thought I knew about grief and I had no idea the strength of it the numbness that you went through, the way your mind wouldn't function. And that, you know, I felt for a long time like I was holding on to life by just a thread. And I didn't want anyone to know how unsettled I was inside because I thought they would commit me. I mean, this was 1975. We knew very little that we know today about grief and loss. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had just come out with On Death and Dying. And it was interestingly, it was a gift my husband had given me 24 hours before. He had visited wow. a bookstore where we were and he handed it to me. And I thought, 
my God, we're young. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe someday for my work, this will become important. And of all the things that flew out of that car, never to be seen again, that book remained and it became my template. So. Wow, this is, this is fascinating. The fact that he gave you that book right before he died. And I was just interviewed by Everyday Health about the Kubler-Ross stages because I'm on their advisory board. And as you know, better than anybody, I think in, in some ways they've been misunderstood because they aren't linear and they're not rigid and we move in and out of them. Right. So uh, actually when she wrote that, it was for the dying person. Exactly. Those were their stages, but a lot of it is common. But yes, if it would be so neat, I thought to myself many times in those early months, if this were linear, like I've gone through anger and now that's behind me and, you know, but grief comes slamming in like waves. And just when you think I've, I've made some adjustments, I'm doing a little better then it hits again. And I think I understand that because if pain, like if the pain of that time came to me full force mm-hmm. without anything to protect me, I, pain would have won. And so I think it's a series of small steps. You, you manage to get through one day and, and one hard, hard experience of pain and you have a little respite and then it hits again and it hits again. But not well, understanding and, that is difficult. Yeah, I, I think this is so key because I mean, not only did you lose your child you also lost your husband at the same time. I mean, it's so devastating. And I'm, I've heard this said, and I don't know that it's true, but I've heard sometimes people say, sometimes they, didn't, they don't know who they're grieving when they have multiple losses. That absolutely happened to me. And then I've experienced it with people over and over again. And for me, the loss of my child was so unthinkable. Mm-hmm. And I was burying a child at the same time I was carrying life and getting ready to have another child. And I remember in the, my journal in those days saying to my husband, Roy, writing to him and saying, I'm really don't feel that I didn't love you, but I can't grieve both of these things in the same moment. And I had to get some kind of a handle on the loss of a child before I then grieved not only my husband, but then the marriage and the dream that we had for our future. I mean, I, I think the, your whole future dream, was, yeah, yeah is, is so key to people. And, and that makes sense. I mean, like you said, grieving Sarah and it was so all consuming as a child, you know, as a child death is that you almost had to shelf your husband for a little bit. Mm-hmm. so that you would not be so overwhelmed that you were incapacitated because you also were trying to remain semi-healthy because you were carrying a child. Mm-hmm. It's very complicated. Yeah, that was the reason I ate. That was yeah. the reason I got exercise. And the grief for my husband really came in with the birth. It was only six months later of, of my second child, another daughter, Beth. But then I was aware I'm doing this alone. Yeah. I I don't have anybody. I couldn't find a place to fit, which I think is today is so much better for people, but still difficult. Um, 
you know, I wasn't quite, you know, I was a parent without a partner, but I wasn't divorced and I'd lost a child, but I'd also lost a spouse. So anything that existed then, I didn't fit. And so given that you had this very unreal experience of, of two deaths and that there wasn't a lot of support groups out there at that time period, there wasn't, I'm guessing any, mm -hmm. how did you, what did you do? What did help? How have you, I know you've done a lot in your life. What did you do to find hope again? Um, I, I've read a lot from the author, James Finley. And one thing he has said was, when you come to the fork in the road, you'll either despair or you'll go deeper. And I went deeper. I found people that were older. I found people that had had a similar experience. And I asked them, and almost to a person, they said to me, at some point, I began to go on when I learned to see the beauty still in life. You know, sort of like that movie, Collateral Beauty. It's something is always being given. Something is always being given in life. And your lens can become your pain and your anger that you didn't get what you wanted. But those people said to me, just go deeper because something is always being given and, and find a deeper love, which- So you set, you set out an intention. Yes. To go deeper and to find things that were still beautiful in your life and that you still had gratitude for. Yes, which has its own power. You know? Yes, absolutely. And even if you don't, feel, I mean, people sometimes say, well, I don't feel well enough to do that or I don't feel good. I said, yes, but that's when you need to do it the most. Mm -hmm. Even if it was a plant that blossomed. I mean, it, these weren't grand things. And I also, I met with a very old minister early on. And he said to me, you know, I hope you'll find again the purpose for your life. And I said, I lost the purpose of my life when my husband and child were killed. And he looked at me very close with a lot of love and said to me, that was the purpose you wanted. Life itself has a greater purpose. And if you can find that, you'll find your way. And so that was a like a great headlight that directed wow. me. And I wanted to survive well because I had another child who was going mm -hmm. to inherit. However, I managed this and I understood that. Really That's powerful. And so then you went on to found the Redbird Foundation at some point. Yes. And in a way, although it doesn't carry their names, that was my way of taking the, the road that Sarah and Roy would have walked with me and, and kind of taking our love and breaking it up into pieces and passing it out to the world for people that were in need, people that were impoverished, people that had nothing, had no resource given to them and, and to do work in the world that would help that. And I, I always feel that Sarah and Roy are, are behind that. I couldn't bear the thought that having known and loved them, the rest of my life would be diminished. Yeah. They deserved more. I wanted because of having known them and loved them, my life that followed to be more. Because and it I certainly has. So tell me more about the, I like how they've inspired you to live your best life mm -hmm. and to do it in honor of them. 
and as a tribute to them, what exactly do you do in the Red, at the Red Bird Foundation? I know you do retreats. We do offer retreats and often for very small out of the way places that could never hire somebody to come in. We scholarship people to go to retreats. I, you wouldn't want to know how many emails I handle in a given week of people that are going through loss, have read a book or, you know, come to me. And that's as much a part of my mission. But we've also done a lot of work with men and women in the Middle East with all the tension and the, um, the loss that's there. We've done a lot of work in the country of Lithuania when the communist occupiers left. Those people were left bereft. And so my, my work has taken me to many different countries and often it would be hospice or it would just be that somebody had identified a group that would like some support and beautiful people, beautiful people that That's have amazing. just helped that to happen. What kind of things do you do on the retreats that you feel help people after loss? Um, I think it helps people just even to know that they're hearing from someone that has actually experienced it so if i went in there or i do a lot of work in prisons and jails if you go in just as a professional it's one thing but the minute i tell even if it's three minutes of my story they say okay you know pain and people have often expressed that like if if one person then could come past this then maybe i could also so we talk a lot about, about healing and finding a safe place to heal and finding support, which exists today, support groups, counselors, journaling. I mean, what, whatever it is, you know, we really support that the pain needs to move. It needs to get from the inside to outside because, you know, from your work, that pain is all an energy. And if it gets tamped down, and if you just repress it and try to stay busy, then the body is left trying to deal with that. And then it usually comes out in a physical symptom. To do the body the keeps the memory. The body holds that trauma. How, what kind of things can people do out there? If there there's people listening right now that are saying, okay, I'm holding a lot of my grief in my body and I don't know what I can do. What kind of things would you advise them to do? I mean, there are so many different ways of grieving. Um, yeah. I encourage people when the tears come to not hold them back and let them come. Again, it moves it from the inside to the outside. If you have a, a reliable witness in your family or your friend system to talk and talk and talk and talk, people think you're better just years before you really have told the story enough because you're telling it initially to believe it yourself, not to inform so somebody else. And so very, some, very good point. Some people find help by journaling. Again, just getting it out, then you can burn the journal if you care to. I mean, my first book was just the honest journal I was keeping. I wasn't writing a book. I was trying to stay sane and I needed to say it what I was thinking and what I was feeling, support groups, if that works for people, that sometimes is, is a lifesaver. What was the name of your first book? It was Song for Sarah, which was- Song for Sarah. Show. And it sounds like you were really candid about what you were going through. And I, I like the idea of you saying, I was, I was trying to remain sane because I remember 
feeling after my brother died, like I was, I didn't recognize myself mm -hmm. and I felt crazy and I felt like what's going on. And I, and I like that you, you normalize that grief is messy and complicated and we don't feel like ourselves sometimes. Right. Yeah. And that's and so, all in there. It was so transparent that book because it was my honest journal and it was just that a few years later someone in publishing happened to see it and read it and then the work came for me to decide would I let that be published would that really be helpful you know yeah. for people wow and you have a what's what is your most current and recent book um would be winter of the heart winter of the heart and tell us a little bit about that someone asked me an editor if i would be willing to do a very small book because that's helpful when you're grieving about grief and my immediate response was i've written a lot of books that have to do with grief and i think i'm done with that and he said he looked it up and he said i feel like it's been 30 or 40 years since you wrote one specifically to grief and he said wouldn't it be important for readers to have the perspective of somebody that had gone through this and then in a very much later season of their life looked back on it and would be able to say these are the things that happened to me and here is what i found really held me and so i, I love this so with that in mind what do you wish you had known then that you know now Huh. that my version of God wasn't God and that my version of life wasn't life and that it's possible to have all these assumptions and opinions about things and you're just either you're not old enough or you're mistaken and I wish I had known that right at the start because a lot of the suffering was that life didn't turn out the way i thought it should and i thought there was a way life should turn out and so going through that was so much suffering so much suffering different from the pain of the loss but they were like i call them the ultimate questions the big questions about life that i i was too young to have even considered but then to learn everything is a gift like I, I didn't deserve this man and this child. I, I didn't earn them that everything in life is lent to you. And it actually changed the way I was able to raise my second daughter because you treat a gift differently than you do a possession. Like she wasn't mine, that this is the terms of life. This is life on life's terms. And it, it caused a freedom in me that has never stopped. That's amazing. I love that. Um, that is really, really a powerful message. As you said, the people in our lives are gifts. Um, so if someone wants to do a retreat with you or get one of your books or visit your website, where can they go? They can look at the website, redbirdfoundation.com. And I do virtual retreats and i think there's still a couple more this year some of them are just an evening long some of them are you know a couple of days the all of my books would be on my website listed or amazon you just need to put 
put in my name. So. Well, you are truly an inspiration and a lifeline for so many out there who don't know how they're going to survive or even if they want to right now, mm-hmm. because you are living proof that your life can go on, be full of joy, be full of hope, and you can contribute in big ways to society. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for everything that you've done and are doing, Paula. And I want to thank everybody today for listening to Open to Hope. Dot com And I would like to remind you all, if you've lost hope, please lean on mine and Paula's until you found your own. And God bless. I'm Dr. Heidi Horsley. You have been listening to Open to Hope, the podcast. You can follow Open to Hope on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To learn more, visit us at opentohope.com and go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe. I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. Join us again next week for another Open to Hope conversation where we invite you to lean on our hope until you find your own.